Welcome to Talking Precision Medicine, the podcast in which we discuss the future of healthcare and health technology and how advances in data and data science are fueling the next industrial revolution. Our guest this episode is Dr. Susanna Harris, community lead at Vibe Bio. Susanna is a dedicated scientific communicator and an outspoken advocate for the mental health of PhD students and other science researchers. She has chronicled her journey from the academic lab bench to a venture incubator to a promising biotech company for a substantial social media following and joins us today to dive into these topics and more. Come on in and have a listen. Hey, everybody. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Susanna Harris. Susanna is a up-and-coming biotech star, in my opinion. I actually first got to know her over social media, and this is exciting for me because we're actually having our first live chat. What's interested me so much about following Susanna's career so far is that she has discovered this incredible world of career outside of academia for scientists. And this is something I'm really passionate about, as I also had to go on that journey myself. She's now working at a really exciting new biotech called ViBio. I want to learn all about that. And we're just going to dive in and have a great conversation. Susanna, thank you. Welcome to the show. Um, let's start with what you're doing now. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about ViBio and what you do there. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And, and like you said, this is a lot of fun. It's it's great when digital world starts creeping into more of the 3D spaces. So my background is, is originally as a scientist, as a researcher. I have a PhD in microbiology. So most people, when I say that piece, assume that maybe I'm still at the bench, maybe I'm going the more traditional academic route, not where I went towards. And in fact, I, at first blush, it seems like I'm quite far afield now, work at a biotech called Vibe Bio. Uh, and our job as Vibe Bio is to bring together all of the different resources that are required to bring new drugs into the market for rare diseases. So all of the financial capital, the human capital, the passion, the, the resources, how do we bring all of these things together through a community and drive the development of new treatments for diseases that are really impactful to people. It's a really big problem rare disease is super common as a whole, but the traditional funding structure doesn't really support the funding of these programs. And my, my job actually there is to be the community lead. My job is to find the right people, the patients, the scientists, the different partners, and bring them together towards this common cause. Tell us a little more about that. What does it mean to be a community lead? In this case, what constitutes a community? I'm actually going to take it back to what I did in my PhD. So I actually studied bacterial communities on plant roots. So when you think about a bacterial community and you talk about a collection of bacteria all living together, this is called usually a biofilm. It's all the bacteria plus all the stuff that they secrete that protects them and all of the different behaviors that they have. So when I think of a community, I do think of the people. There's the aspect of who is in the community. Are, do we have the patients who can provide their input and their insight? Do we have the scientists who are gonna be able to do some of these projects and provide that sort of background? Do we have the funders, the financiers that are gonna be able to provide kind of that financial mm -hmm. fuel to move things along? But you also have all of these activities that they are doing. So for me, a community is these people plus the environment. We are a decentralized company and we actually represent this movement called decentralized science. The idea that everybody who gets involved in a project should have some ownership over it, should feel really empowered to lend their voice, lend their skills 
for the betterment of the entire group and for their own actual progress. So when, when I talk about community, I think it's important to distinguish community from audience. Uh, mm -hmm. These aren't just people that we're speaking to, but rather these are people that we're listening to and who are doing such important work. Our job is to create that space for them to do that work and to feel really good about it. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about the ups and downs of, of the rare disease biotech space, it occurs to me there, there are at least three groups, and you, you can disabuse me of this and tell me there are more or fewer, but you have the families who seem to be absolutely essential catalyzing agents for change. And then the funders, as you mentioned, and then there's the biotechs. And it's not obvious how you align the incentives of those three groups. So, so how is BiBio thinking about that? Great question. Um, and it's it's interesting to have, have that start out point. I think it's common and in a lot of ways true that the incentives don't align. But if we strip it down all the way to the basics, every single group that you just mentioned, and there's a couple others, the regulators, the mm -hmm. clinicians as well, all of these groups benefit if effective drugs get into the market and are able to be accessed by the patients. At the end of the day, the financiers aren't going to have anything if a drug program doesn't work, if it doesn't mm -hmm. go forward, if it's not funded, if people can't buy it. Although there's conversations of the scientists versus the business people. And uh, that's something that I really enjoyed when I was working, did a year and a half in venture capital, working in communications and engagement there, and watching those interactions where you would sometimes see investors sitting across the table from scientists and this idea of who's going to win. And the reality mm -hmm. is that if either person loses, both people right. lose. If the scientist isn't able to get the money that they need to do their work, the investor can't do their job. They don't get that, that mm -hmm. payout. They don't get to invest in other programs. And vice versa, if the investor can't get that money, can't spend it on the right kind of programs, the scientists mm -hmm. ultimately lose out. So I think that it's it's less about how can I find um, or create incentives that align people, but rather how do I allow people to see that they do already have these mm -hmm. shared incentives, they do already have these shared missions, and that if we focus on those commonalities, uh -huh. people can drive towards that. They don't have to pick and choose. They don't have to set aside a piece of themselves or, or acquiesce right. to anyone else. It's we're on the same team. We want to get drugs that work mm -hmm. into people. It sounds obvious, but also somewhat daunting, right? Because there's a lot of communication, a lot of, a lot of bridges to build, I think, uh, to connect. I guess we're now to five different stakeholder groups, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, there's the aspect of what are you communicating? And, and a big mm -hmm. challenge that's on my plate is how do you communicate? You know, mm -hmm. Where are the logistics of communication? Especially mm -hmm. my my team itself, there's uh, 10 of us. It's a very early startup. And mm -hmm. we've got a couple people in Boston. We've got somebody in Denver, somebody in Austin. I'm in San Francisco. So even communication on that small side mm -hmm. is, is tricky. You want to stay in the loop. You don't want to bombard mm -hmm. people with messages, but you also don't want to have disconnect. And right. then as we're thinking about this, how do we create uh, essentially a biotech that is potentially thousands of people contributing in their own mm -hmm. ways? How do we manage that? Is that through a Slack? Is that through a Discord? Right. Is that right. a Facebook group? And the answer is that it's the same as with science communication itself of meeting people where they are and kind of understanding that there is a general and gentle progression that needs to happen. If I go to somebody and they're used to using Twitter to communicate and to share their work, I need to show them that they can do that on Twitter and this other platform and right. these other spaces. So it's, it's gradual. You have to be really patient. 
Uh, let's talk a little more about communication. Uh, again, you know, I became aware of, of you and your work through social media. And, you know, what struck me is here was someone who was clearly committed to communicating about science and also issues that are meaningful to scientists, right? Not just the science itself. Where did that passion come from? How did it kind of manifest? Looking back, I was thinking about this a lot the other day because I saw this really interesting tweet that asked whether scientists should communicate. I was like, that's a bizarre question. And also, it really the question is, should communicators do science? Because we mm -hmm. all learned to communicate well before we understood the scientific method. There's nobody mm -hmm. who is so logical that they have somehow allowed scientific logic to take over their brain more so than their innate understanding of the importance of communicating with other mm -hmm. people. There's the aspect of I was always really interested in storytelling. I always really actually enjoyed school. I loved reading, uh, was involved in, in speaking opportunities and, and things like that when I was younger. So there was that kind of latent enjoyment of learning from and teaching others. My, my dad was actually a biology teacher. On the flip side, I think that usually the story that I tell and where the story kind of starts in a lot of ways is that in my second year of graduate school, I kind of was starting to hit that wall of, okay, what am I doing here? Is this project a good project? Am I actually helping the world? I was starting to get a little disincentivized. I was starting to feel like maybe I wasn't actually as excited about my work as I thought I would be. And I got involved in a local planetarium and science center science outreach program that taught scientists how to communicate, how to actually, from a pedagogy standpoint, help people learn. And I really enjoyed that. It got me excited about my own science. I got to re-remember why my science was really cool. The next year I got to train for that same program and it was just a good fit. Mm -hmm. I just loved it. Mm -hmm. I just loved working with these incredibly intelligent, passionate ridiculously stubborn people and helping them unlock within themselves that ability right. to, to communicate and connect. And did you carry that back to the lab with you or back to your department? You know, so you're doing this kind of outside of school. And just for the listeners, you were at Chapel Hill, right? University mm -hmm. of North Carolina for your PhD. Yeah. So were you able to come and sort of bring some of your wisdom back to, to the program? I think so. I, I mean, that's, that's also where that question of should scientists communicate is so funny. Right. It's just funny to me. It doesn't even get Right. Be annoyed. It's just sort of hilarious because anytime you give a talk or write a paper or, you know, present at lab meeting, that's what you're doing. You're communicating. Mm -hmm. So I do think that a lot of the, the teachings that I learned through those programs and through helping other scientists did really translate. Mm -hmm. I think it was also, I found myself more and more realizing that whereas my, my colleagues would write papers and write grants and go to conferences so that they could do their science, Mm -hmm. I was really doing the science. I was doing this lab work so that I could go to the conferences. So I had mm -hmm. something to talk about. So right. it was that, you know, that learning of the enjoyment of communication that helped me realize that I did not want to stay in the academic or the research track. Yeah. I mean, the, the Twitter question is an odd one to me. And I remember having this discussion with a colleague of mine who, after his PhD, actually went to law school is at the FDA now. But his view, which he convinced me of, is that it's actually a scientific imperative that we disseminate our science, right? And that can't just be at the back of PNAS. It has to be to the funders, right? I mean, this was his view. It's like, we were all funded by the NIH or the NSF. People paid us to be here. So we have to tell them what we just discovered. Yeah. I mean, there's been unknown amount of science that's been conducted. There's been incredible discoveries that we don't know about and have no record of. And so they just don't matter. And we even talk about that with what's called negative data, where mm -hmm. a scientist has said, 
I think that this piece of the world works this way. And they do some tests and they say, mm, it doesn't work that way. It's often something that you can't really publish. It's not mm -hmm. something that papers will get excited about. So there's so many experiments. We have so much knowledge that we don't, we don't put anywhere. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that just means that all of that knowledge is either repeated forever or just is, is never used. So I, I agree with that sentiment. No, certainly, you know, years four and five of grad school, we were all kind of dying to know when we'd start actually getting the publications racking up. We, we all longed for a journal of negative results or, you know, a journal of failed experiments, third tier journal of lab catastrophes, you know, whatever it took. I think there was a, a Tumblr that was called a over overly honest uh, protocols or lab protocols, <laughs> overly honest methods. There we go. And uh, it was so funny because it was so often you read these papers and they'll say, we chose this specific solution of, of sodium chloride uh, because of this and that and yeah. the other. And so you're doing your experiments and you're under this right. impression that that is exactly what you should be doing. And if you have anything else, it's not going to work. And then you talk to the scientists at a conference and they say, yeah, actually I wanted to use this other thing, but we ran out. out of it because I didn't order it. Um, the stock so. room was closed at five and I was doing my experiment at six. Right. So it's like, yeah, 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 exactly. And I think, you know, I do have some issues with how academic science can be conducted or, or rather like how academics are treated by the system. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think most of the complaints or concerns I have around it are just looking at this system and thinking, is this actually efficient? Are we actually mm -hmm furthering our cause, increasing knowledge and training people and allowing the world to become a better place mm -hmm. through the creation of understanding and things like that of just, there's a lot of information that, that we don't carry on to the next person and imagine how much potential we could unlock if we actually captured that and shared it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I have these conversations and, and I do some, I used to do more sort of career coaching and mentoring and around you know career choice and and academia is a perfectly viable one although i think it's a bit of a ponzi scheme i try not to kind of cast shade on on the routes i didn't take right like i, I mean i'm very pleased with being in biotech and being in private sector it sometimes is hard not to disparage the other side because certainly our industry has plenty of warts but so let's frame it in the affirmative what have you found so far now having done a turn in venture but in biotech formation and and now you're in this i don't know next gen digital biotech, what what do you find appealing about what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought you were going to go in the direction of like, what do, what do I miss from academia? And there are a couple we can, things we, that We I can miss. go that way too. In fact, I Yeah, I'd I'll start there because I do. I yeah. mean, I, okay. I the pieces that I miss I, I, are things that if I could do grad school again, that I would really want to focus on more were the fact that you can attend seminars with the most brilliant people in the world and they just show up to you and you get usually fed to watch these people mm -hmm. talk is amazing. Mm -hmm. As soon as you get out of that, it's like you have to pay thousands of dollars for a conference to see these same exact people. So I think I I took for granted how incredible it was to be around some of these, these folks who were just like changing sure. the world on a daily basis. Uh, and the other thing that I, I do miss sometimes is I do miss the bench work occasionally. I miss the kind of mm -hmm. arts and crafts aspects of all this. Sure. Uh, Scotch taping, Kim wipes into your lab notebook, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like, you know, waiting for the microscope to heat up and looking at dust mm -hmm. under it. It's right. really fun. But um, as far as the stuff I like now, I get to focus more on those aspects of grad school that I did know I want to do. Um, the, mm -hmm. the communication pieces, the talking to people, the traveling to conferences. I mean, conferences are thousands of dollars, but if you work in biotech, your company can pay for it. And also you get 
your travel paid for. I love traveling. I love meeting mm-hmm. new people. I also, uh, something that was, I was worried about leaving academia was that I was, I was worried I was going to miss the science. I was going to miss learning about it. And mm-hmm. if, if you end up in biotech or you end up in a space, especially where you're acting as a funder, you have the world's top scientists, not just talking to you, but they're pitching to you. They're trying to convince you how amazing their science is. And they're showing you things that they're never going to show at a conference. They're kind of trusting you with a lot of their private information and these absolutely cutting edge pieces of science. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I like, I like that aspect. And I also really like to the fact that if you work in biotech, uh, especially in a communications aspect, you are going to interact with academics. You're going to act with, Mm -hmm. interact with VCs. You're going to interact with regulators you just get to meet all the people who make science happen. I think those are really valuable observations. The one you hit on last is is the key thing for me. I mean, I'm mostly a bureaucrat now, like, you know, I do paperwork and fundraising and stuff, but I, I've been able to be a scientist through my entrepreneurial career too, right? Like, I think what a lot of graduate students don't get, and maybe it's getting better because I'm at least a half generation older than you, but where I think a lot of academic programs fail in the training is to point out that there are a lot of ways to be a scientist and a lot of places to be a scientist, a lot of ways to get paid to be a scientist. And frankly, you get paid better in most of the ways that aren't academia. So, but it's, it's so affirming to be able to keep doing science. I'm still trying to realize the dream of, of the work I did as a postdoc, but I'm just doing it in a different setting. Right. Absolutely. And, and to the, you know, the financial aspect of this and the compensation, I didn't grow up with a lot of money and it's not like in a, not in a way that it was a problem or anything, but it, I didn't feel like I was missing out on anything, even when I was getting paid a grad school stipend. It never resonated to me of why I needed to make more money, why I needed to make my quote unquote market value. It was like, I'm, I'm getting paid to do the things I love. Why would I need to get paid anything more? And what you find out is that money just allows you to focus on other things. It allows you a lot of things. But for me, sure. it was that I don't have to worry about certain things. Um, my dog mm-hmm. got sick. I didn't think, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay for this? Do I need to reschedule this? Uh, if I miss a bus, I can pay for an mm-hmm. Uber. Well, a lot of those things that weighed on me a lot in grad school that I didn't realize, mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about that. And so mm-hmm. I get to focus more of my time on the things that I love, which is spending time with scientists and learning about yeah. science and helping communicate it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a whole nother podcast worth of topic of kind of the underpaid postdoc and the, the hamster wheel that you can get on, right? And when I riff that academia is a Ponzi scheme, all I mean is there aren't that many new top jobs opening up, right? So if you've got a dozen trainees in a lab and everyone in the department's got 10 years, you're just sort of waiting for someone to keel over so someone else can get a job. Yeah. And I'm very hopeful that we're about to see some some revolutions and even like you were saying, even in the last few years, I've, I've noticed a shift. I think that things like social media actually have mm-hmm. opened the door for people to have some of these conversations that even if you're comfortable with your lab mates or your department, there's mm-hmm. some things that you don't feel comfortable necessarily talking about to the person right next to you. Mm-hmm. And, and social media can provide that. And what I've been seeing a lot of is that people will talk about the difficult times they're having in academia and others mm-hmm. can validate that that is unacceptable. And that is like, they should mm-hmm. not have to go through that. I think equally as important actually is showing the exciting times in academia mm-hmm. and how amazing it can be to be a graduate student who's treated mm-hmm. well. Uh, and I think that those posts are especially important, not not to convince everyone that everything is rosy. I think that that is a, a terrifying idea. But rather, I talk to a lot of graduate students who are in 
arguably bad positions and with somebody mm -hmm. who is not treating them well, or they're in a situation that is completely out of their control. And they oftentimes will say to me, I don't have it that bad. Like, at least it's not this, at least it's not this. Mm -hmm when they start to find out what it could be and how mm -hmm. amazing this opportunity of being a student in a research space can be, that's when the wheels start mm -hmm. turning. And that's when people start advocating for themselves and saying, that's the experience I signed up for. This is what mm -hmm. I want. So I, I'm excited. I, I think things are changing. I'm hopeful. And I think there's a lot of academics out there yeah. and people who have been academics and still really care about those spaces. Uh, coming in and saying, let's make this the place that we all were told it was. I think there can be crappy bosses and great bosses anywhere. Yeah. But I also think that in a graduate school setting, in a laboratory setting, the power dynamic is such that if you happen to pick a crappy boss, it's more debilitating than if you're just at a job, right? Yeah. Where maybe you have a little more mobility, you don't have as much of your like self-esteem, as much of your future career on the line. You know, yeah. where if you, you leave, it may get tarnished. Right. Um, so since I graduated in March of 2020, which is an interesting time to graduate, I will say that. Sure. I've had a couple of different jobs because I've wanted to. And I, I hadn't thought about how tricky it is to have just a single job and to feel like if, I mean, I spent five and a half years in grad school. And if let's say that last semester, things fell apart two months before, right? The pandemic hit mm -hmm. a couple months before, there's a real possibility that I would not have finished. And it would kind of in a lot of ways and in, in a lot of people's minds render those last several years as some level of failure. And had mm -hmm. I had a falling out or something with my advisor, I'm lucky to, to not have had that situation, but right. so many people do. You have this person who has 90% of the power over your future. As I've gotten to change jobs and, and kind of find my perfect fit, being able to say I worked at a grant writing agency for nine months, that's not a failure. No one says, why didn't you, right. why didn't you stay for three years? It's just like, oh, wow. Imagine the skills yeah. that you have now. And so having mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, there's a lot of concerns about job stability, but I don't ever reapply for my job. I don't have to write papers to say that I should keep the job I have. Right. And even if something were to happen uh, and my job would disappear, I'm really hireable. It's, it's comforting. Yeah. It's nice. 100%. I think that's one of the interesting things, because you've kind of taken an entrepreneurial route. And you know, th that's one way to do it. But of course, there's great science at big pharma and at mm -hmm. diagnostics companies too, right? If you're a PhD student listening, and you want to work at the bench, a huge amount of people do bench work elsewhere, right? So go get a stable job at a big company with a lot of cash on the balance sheet. If you want to do startup, strap in, right? Because <laughs> it can be a bit of a wild ride. But to your point, you learn so many skills because you kind of have to do a little bit of everything that I think you become eminently hireable and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I do think it's rare. It really is statistically rare for people to leave academia and go to an industry job or an, a government job or whatever job and come back. However, at the level of you leave as a, a recent graduate or as after doing a postdoc, there mm -hmm. are opportunities to come back. I wouldn't I wouldn't say the interpretation mm -hmm. of people not coming back should be ascribed to you can't come back. It is mm -hmm. harder if you have a faculty position that you leave because that can mm -hmm. set off some red flags. But generally there's not a huge amount of harm done if you can find a, a good job that gives you new skills to go out and do it for a year or do it for a couple of years and say, I actually really miss academia. I know I yeah. wanna be here. That's not something I've actually heard be a, uh, a limiting moment for people. Yeah, but you're right. You don't hear a ton of examples of it, but I, but I also think it's possible. 
I also, it, it seems to me, at least from this side of the fence, that there's been so much excitement, maybe a little bit less in this current market, but so much excitement in the biotech space. And I think COVID helped with that. But I also think, you know, the recent frothy stock market helped with that. But also, like, we're in a, a really interesting era of medicine and, and data science and all this other stuff. I think a lot of academics, especially at top institutions, have a, a finger in that world because there's mm-hmm. they're licensing out technology. They have colleagues who are going to, you know, being recruited by the top biotechs. And so I think that part of the change, you mentioned there may be change, part of the change may come from this just a softening of sentiment where it's no longer considered a failure if you leave academia. Like you got your PhD, but that was a door opener, not a, you know, my PhD advisor had an entrepreneurial streak. He started a bunch of companies. But he's also been in the same tenured faculty position since he was 27 years old. You know, same office in an ivory tower somewhere. And like, that's just not a, that, that's not a life that's available to most of us, right? So he has to soften his view and he, he has that like, all right, going and doing something, company building or whatever is fine. And I think that's part of the change we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, and and we need scientists in every single space. I think that's mm-hmm. a, a piece that sometimes gets lost where, it, while I was in grad school, there was all these conversations of the news reporters, they don't know enough about science or the, mm-hmm. the government officials, they don't know enough about science or the stock brokers. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing you can do to change that is to start putting scientists into these positions right. and for people to keep investing in academic science and for people to keep understanding it, like we need emissaries, we need people right. who are from the academy and say, we want this to keep going. We want academic yep. science to continue. We want this foundational research that really can't be done easily outside of academia to continue. I'm going to go be the person that sits in the state legislature. Like right. that's, a, that's actually, it's essential. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and it goes back to that point of that. I don't actually think most of the time our incentives are actually that misaligned when you get down to the core of it. That's a very good point. You simply have to educate people about what's really going on. I had just mentioned kind of a one way that things may change a bit. You are, maybe it's fair to say, more involved in kind of the grassroots side, so bottom-up change in grad school. Can you talk a little bit about some of the advocacy work you did then and whether or how it continues today? Yeah, this is how I ended up on social media. A lot of people assume that I was on social media and then I started this thing, but I definitely was not. Like I mentioned, I was getting into science communication. I also did a workshop where they asked us to pick an article and do some sort of communication outwards. Most people chose to do science writing. I'd already figured out that was not my forte. Uh, And so the article I chose actually was not about biology. It was a a paper that came out in Nature Biotech uh, in February of 2018. And it was this really interesting paper that had surveyed about 2000 different graduate students and found if they just filled out the forms that you would take when you go to the doctor's office and they they say, hey, like, I think I'm a little, a little worried about how you're feeling. Uh, let's do these surveys for anxiety and depression. Um, about 40% of these graduate students, most of whom were PhDs, would qualify as being severely depressed or anxious. So obviously this didn't mean that they had a diagnosis. It's not something that that should be taken away from it, but rather that at any given time, when you surveyed 2000 people, 40% of these people showed signs and symptoms of severe depression and anxiety. Uh, And this was fascinating to me, one, because it was actually very comforting. I dealt with depression and other kind of mental health issues on and off through my life. And especially the year before I had a really dark period of time. And it was comforting to know that I 
not only could I turn to a person nearby me and say, I'm having a hard time and they'd say, oh, that's okay. And my friend does, or mm -hmm. uh, it's okay. You don't have to feel bad, but they, there's a pretty good chance that they would say, oh, me too, right mm -hmm. now, or oh, me too, right. last week. And so it was really comforting. But then at the same time, I became really frustrated because this paper cited other papers. These pieces of research have been done. We've known this for actually decades that graduate mm. students and academics and postdocs and even faculty members are more likely to deal with mental health issues, have a much higher rate of depression, anxiety, ADHD. It's, it's kind of an interesting select group of people. And, you know, not going to get into the why of that because there's brilliant people who are, are studying exactly those questions. I looked at it from a communication standpoint of, I was in this conference, looked around and thought, technically 40% of these people probably are dealing with something and they would probably understand my existence, but mm. I don't see it. I don't trust that. I still, knowing this number, don't trust it. And that's because we're humans. We have to see it. So I started this page on Instagram to do exactly that, to tell the stories that we don't normally tell each other in these shared environments and to show the faces that we normally do. Instagram's a great place to show the happy face and the story right. that's maybe not what we expect. That was all it was. It was like a social experiment for an assignment. Mm -hmm. uh, and I encourage people to share their stories. It was called PH depression because I was a PhD mm -hmm. student with depression mm -hmm. and to share their stories. Very quickly, people said, I want to share about having anxiety. Can I do that? I want to share about PTSD. I want to share about abusive advisors. I want to share about being an international student. And it turned mm -hmm. into something where now it's called PhD balance. And it's this uh, community mostly comprised of current or previous academics who are all dedicated to learning through these shared experiences, sharing what they have gone through, sharing the resources that they have created or they have found that got them through those difficult aspects of grad school that don't actually have to do with the, the research being hard. I ran it directly for about three years. And then that started in March of, of 2020. That started in March of 2018. So mm -hmm. uh, we... We're coming up on, it'll be five years in, in March of this, this upcoming year, which is pretty wild. Uh, I ran it for three years and then we've started a new system where a new president who is a current graduate student at the time is the president. It's a team of volunteers. I think right now we have like 22 volunteers spread out all around the mm -hmm. world. There's the social platforms. There's a website where we curate resources. There's speaking events. It's mostly though just a space for people to share and not yeah. feel quite Can, so can we put some of those links in the show notes? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So awesome. um, yeah, it's just, and if you look up PhD balance and the website is phdbalance.com with no spaces, you should be able to find us. And we're always looking for people to share their stories, always looking for people to just be yeah. part of the community and, and care about others. Now this, this resonates with me a ton. I mean, in, in my graduate experience, I was in a, a lab set up with an advisor and a co-advisor and, and kind of every, more or less everyone was shared. And, and one of those guys was tough and Put a lot of us through turmoil, including cases where people had to leave the lab and some people didn't finish. And, and yeah, it would have been great to have a resource like that back then. Yeah. I mean, I think I have gotten the most out of it because the people I've gotten to work with are incredible. These are, again, mm -hmm. super smart, super talented, passionate, dedicated folks who all of them are willingly giving their time to try to make the world better for other people. Yeah. It's been inspiring. It's, it's kept me excited about even through graduating. Um, 
it caused me to learn how to use social media because I built this thing and suddenly I wasn't right. on Twitter at the time. And somebody said, you have to be on Twitter. And I said, absolutely not. And that's how we got our first teammate is I said, I'm not going to be on Twitter. No way, no how. This person is going to translate all of our Instagram posts to Twitter. It's sort of funny now in retrospect, because I am very much on Twitter. It gets less scary as you use it, but you, yeah. you, you learn things as you need to. And so yeah. that was an opportunity for me to learn quite a few things. Honestly, occasionally members of my board of directors will comment on Slack times in, in our social media presence. And we, we have a pretty good marketing group that keeps our company pulse going. But I take long mental health breaks from the social media platforms. And I'm nominally only there for the company, right, to re-promote stuff and promote the brand. But of course, there's the politics and the rage and the fear and the hate. You know, I'm not good at figuring out how to use it without it getting too much. Yeah, there's a lot of great studies out there that you can use social media to put yourself in a better mood and to learn things. You have to fight the algorithms. And similar to you, I don't have a single notification turned on. I don't have notifications mm -hmm. for any social platform. I don't have notifications for emails on my phone. I Good open, yeah, I open, I, I, every day I try to check a new platform for the messages and respond mm -hmm. to just that platform's messages. You learn how to, to cut it out, but usually there's one or two months a year where I just get off all the platforms and I recenter. Mm -hmm you do get into this time. And I think that my time in academia actually kind of helped me get to this point of you are the only person who's going to fight for your own mental health, your own well-being, mm -hmm. the world, the algorithm, the institution mm -hmm. will constantly ask and demand more. And you're the only one who can say, no, I'm not going to, mm -hmm. I'm not going to let you have that. And it's, it's hard and it's scary, but totally worth it. I think there are some interesting parallels between being an entrepreneur and doing the startup thing and being in academia. I've actually always likened it to starting a company is a bit like being pre-tenure faculty, especially if you're like a scientist founder, because you go from, all right, I had a job at the lab bench and now my job is hiring people and raising money, right? That's the same thing a junior faculty does, right? But you're not at all prepared for it because that's not what you were doing a week before you started the damn company. But the other thing is this kind of need for safe spaces, right? I would bet, and there are probably studies on this, that the only place where you see equal rates of anxiety and depression as you do as PhD grad students is among startup founders, right? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's fascinating because it's like uh, in terms of professions, it is it's like academics, um, startups, and the military. Those are pretty bad. There's all the questions of like, is it attracting people? Is it attracting a certain type of person? Is it bringing out right. pieces? It's it's all it's all the things. But absolutely. I mean, I feel like at a, at a startup, I feel like I'm doing a thesis project. I feel like I'm doing a PhD with nine other people. And mm -hmm. then as we grow, it's just more side projects. And mm -hmm. um, I love it because it it does have that fast pace that, oh my gosh, are we doing the right thing? I don't know, uh, but just do it the best you can, bring in all the resources, not the right space for everybody. But mm -hmm. similarly, I don't think I would do very well in a certain type of corporate environment. It's just have a lot of fun yeah I, I sort of wonder what it would be like to have a boss again one day <laughs> i don't envy envy our ceo he's awesome he's really cool the company has two co-founders and so okay. they're probably not quite as lonely as uh the single founder um, but i i just don't i don't envy either of them i love working yeah. for them their personalities complement each other and they're really great at what they do but like i i like to be mm -hmm. startup 
early employee, you get the chaos, yeah. but it's not not anywhere near what the, yeah. the founders have to deal with. I, I think you're doing it right. Get some of those under your belt and if the mood ever strikes, you'll have a lot more experience and kind of wisdom if you one day decide to start something of your own. I don't think there's necessarily any more glory in it than, than not. Um, no, it's, it's true. I mean, being in this environment is not for everybody, but I think it's a privilege. It certainly is. And it's good problems. And I think that's something that I've also gotten to appreciate a bit more in this job versus in, in ones before where academia, I loved, I love the research I was doing, but it, I had to really fight to mm -hmm. see how it was going to be impactful in the world mm -hmm. and in funding, like the different jobs I've been in were are essentially funding positions. Again, you can see it. You can see how your job is necessary for the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But now I get to interact directly with patients and with scientists mm -hmm. and with clinicians. And it, it puts things in perspective where I mm -hmm. will be all stressed out about opening my inbox. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have a conversation with somebody who they just found out their kid has a disease that doesn't even have a name because there's eight people in the world who have right. it. And you're like, you know what? I I can probably do my, I can probably do my emails and I can also do my emails because if I, if I do my job, well, I might actually be able to help the situation. No, I, I think you're right. I, I think that our problems become trivial. If you think about the people we're trying to serve through, through these companies and through our work. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a, a little bit of, before bye bye you were at Zontogeny. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us what is Zontogeny? What, what did you do there? Um, what's that all about? And, and how did it kind of set you up for what you're doing now? Yeah. So Zontogeny is fascinating. Um, it was such an interesting, like one of those pivotal moments in my life. You have a couple of those that I don't know how I got to where I am now, but there's a few moments where I, I know mm -hmm. for a fact, if a certain phone call or something didn't happen, I would not mm -hmm. be here. Uh, and so this particular phone call, I was, I was working at the grant writing agency and I had a, a kind of casual conversation. I was reaching out to certain people who uh, we're, we're kind of our partners. And I ended up on a call with this person. His name's Chris, Chris Garabedian, CEO of Zontogeny. I was too new in the space to know that he was important. He was just somebody on my list and he was a very kind right. person. We had a nice conversation and he followed up with me afterwards and, and was just interested in how I approached communication and, and community. And we stayed in touch. So I found out over time that he ran this group, Zontogeny, which is a life science accelerator and runs a venture fund on behalf of a hedge fund. So basically they fund early stage biotech research that serves human health. And a big aspect of Zontogeny that kind of sets it apart from other accelerators or certainly sets it apart from just a traditional venture capital firm is that they really have a hands-on approach with supporting the founders that they're investing in. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people think of venture capital, you know, the people come in, they're sort of like bankers, they look around, they give a bunch of money, and then they go back and they check in on you once a year and say, where's my mm -hmm. return? That's actually not, not very common. That's not really how biotech investing works. Most people are, are very knowledgeable and, and involved, but I think Zontogeny takes it up a notch and sits down with the groups once a week, once every other week, um, really works with the founding teams. So my role there was one, to go out and be kind of the person who spoke about Zontogeny, going to these conferences, finding people who we'd want to invest in. I like to say I was kind of the first person that people would engage with. So um, sort of recruiting and, deal flow or... or yeah, yeah. Know. Deal flow, education, did a lot of things with like what we called upstream entrepreneurs who they weren't mm -hmm. starting a company yet, but in five years, they might want to know about sure. us. And then I was also 
the first person that people talk to when we did invest with them, because we'd say, we're going to do an investment. And then I'd become the person who helped them write their press releases or help them mm -hmm. set up their website. And so I was sort of their liaison into communications and branding and acted as the person on the team who would be their coach in those spaces. What strikes me as awesome about that, I don't think most people realize how hard it is to do things like branding and marketing well. People train their whole lives at it, right? It's a, a very a highly specialized skill set. And for you to literally jump into the deep end like that is laudable and, and really impressive. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I have a bad sense of what I can't do. I think it's just sort of where it comes down right. to. Uh, but, but I did actually, the reason that that phone call with Chris was, was really pivotal was that I was really straight with him when he said, actually, I think that given your skills and your interests, I think there could be a really great space for you here. And I wanted to say yes. And I said, hey, I don't. I don't know that I can say yes to you because I don't know anything about venture capital. I don't, I have mm -hmm. a bank account and that's about as close as I get to finance. Right. And I think he appreciated the candor. I think that's a big mm -hmm. uh, aspect. And I think also he said, and he was right. He's like, if you know communication and you know science, you can do these things. We can teach you venture. You can mm -hmm. learn venture. If you have done mm -hmm. a PhD, you have self-taught. There's no right. question in my mind that you can self-teach, that you can find resources mm -hmm and learn just about any topic. And it was a huge leap of faith for him. Also a bit of leap, a leap of faith for me. And it turned out that he was very much right. That mm -hmm. It wasn't impossible. It's something that I feel like I can speak pretty comfortably towards. And I'm so glad it opened up an entire new space for me. I have a parting thought and then I'll give you some room to have as many parting thoughts as you'd like. I think what you just described is ultimately the value of doing a PhD, right? Mm -hmm. You learn how to learn. And it lets you do, frankly, whatever the hell you want, as long as you're brave enough to go try. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's true. I think there's a couple pieces there. Like if you have a PhD, it's going to be hard to get paid less than you did while you got your PhD. That's right. So even if you got paid nothing, it's going to be hard for you to find a job that pays you nothing. If you did a mm -hmm. PhD in a research science where you got paid a stipend that is probably illegal for how much you actually worked you are hireable for at least that amount of money. That was something I realized when I came out and did some freelancing where I was terrified. And then I realized I'd been living off of $30,000 for almost six years. I could work at a coffee shop and make that money. I could work mm -hmm. at, as a tutor and make that money. And so there was that sort of aspect of, I was sort of set up to be fine. And not only are you hireable up to that point, but you're very easily hireable for more than that amount of money. You have skills. The other piece that I think has been really helpful and, and is a reason that I am really glad that I did a PhD, all things considered, uh, I think the PhD allowed me to kind of front end, like front load my effort. Mm -hmm. So I have to prove less walking into a room because I'm Dr. Harris versus Miss Harris. And there's a lot of mm -hmm. levels to that. And there's, I'm sure. luckily, a, you know, a white woman. So that does decrease some barriers and like, I'm only I'm, some. Yeah, only some. And like I pass as being heterosexual. Uh, and so there's a lot of a lot of things that are easier for me than they could be. But certainly having a PhD gives me credibility in spaces where it's actually really silly. There's my PhD in microbiology does not indicate really anything about my aptitude for doing branding, but it does translate. Mm -hmm. People do give you that additional level of respect. And so I think like you said, it teaches you how to learn. You learn so much from just the experience. The networking can be incredible if you do it right. And it also, it it does, it carries a weight that I've just found really helpful. Let's pick something off topic, something personal. What Hobbies, likes, dislikes, what do you love about San Francisco? Best place to eat, favorite place you traveled? 
Oh, wow. Yeah. All the questions. Real fast. No, um, it does actually tie together. I think like, food no. is one of my favorite. It's like the love of my life is, is food, is, is experiencing the world through food, is experiencing friendships and family and, and connections through whether it's sharing a meal or creating a meal together. Definitely cooking is sort of my version of creativity. It's sort of my my Zen time of I get to focus on creating a thing. It's very scientific and, and that can mean all levels of things. So I think my favorite food in the city, I up, I'm up in North Beach, so there's too many to choose from in the city, but I would say my two favorite in North Beach are Don Pistos, a really fantastic Mexican restaurant, and then a, a place called Ferenz by Night. I think it's the best, it's the best Italian food I think I've had, but it's certainly the best in North Beach. I'm not paid to say that, but if you go there, get the gnocchi. A large amount of my time is spent on what looks like work. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of my friendships are through work. But I love that. I love that the people that I sit down and hash out really hard details and I get flustered with and I'm annoyed with are also the people that I go to a bar with at 5 p.m. and talk about nothing related to anything. Awesome. Susanna, thank you so much for joining me. This was a lot of fun. Likewise. Thanks so much. And anyone who wants to chat, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to, to continue the conversation. This has been episode 29 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.